I'm Dr. Simon Parsons, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection based in Sydney. And welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts produced exclusively for members of Dental Protection. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risk and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. I'm delighted today to introduce Dr. Annalene Weston, my fellow dental legal consultant at Dental Protection, who is going to explore the really interesting topic of human factors in error. So Annalene, isn't the point that there will always be human error and that we make mistakes because we are human? Absolutely, Simon. It's been said that to err is human and to forgive divine, and naturally not one of us is perfect and we are all going to make mistakes. And this is really something that we as practitioners need to acknowledge, as not only do patients need to understand that things can and will go wrong with their treatment, not only as a result of error, but sometimes just because it does, but also we need to have the emotional resilience to admit our mistakes and to take steps to help put things right for the patient. We need to learn from our mistakes to prevent their repetition. And of course, we need to forgive ourselves. Sadly, the self-forgiveness is where many practitioners fall down as they simply can't forgive themselves for potentially harming another because it's just not who we are. The key here really is how much humanity we're willing to consider as an acceptable margin of error. Is it one patient out of every hundred or 10 or 50? I mean, how much error is too much? And how much is that sweet spot of just the right amount? And how would you feel if you were the patient for whom something went wrong or if it was someone you cared about, a friend or family member who'd been harmed? Would it be enough to say, sorry, bud, the odds were just simply not in your favour on that day? Human error in high-risk industries has been researched and explored with the latest studies demonstrating that 12% of patients who attend hospitals suffer an adverse outcome as a result of human error. And that at least 50% of this is due to what they call preventable error. Now, to be clear, the negative outcomes they're referring to are permanent disability or death for the patient. And I think we would all agree that this is unacceptably high. From a risk management perspective, it's certainly the type of statistic that we want to consider how we could better manage the circumstances to better manage the risk. So, Annalene, you mentioned high risk industries. Do other industries have the same issues then? And they certainly do. The airline industry is probably the industry that's leading the way with this type of research. And when you consider the large scale catastrophic loss of life that occurs when something goes wrong with a flight, it's easy to see why they would have such a focus from airline industry regarding human error. Through their research, they've identified over 300 human errors that can lead to an error which results in, in their case, a plane crash. Of course, before this, there are many precursory errors that can be identified as near misses. And it's as important to recognize and acknowledge these too, because if we can recognize our near misses, then we can learn from them and hopefully prevent them from ever reoccurring and being hits that cause harm. So broadly, the airline research considers human factors across the board. So physiological factors, um, the psychology, including perception, cognition, memory and social interactions. They look at workplace design, environmental conditions, and the human-machine interface. And I think we'd all agree that these headings do transfer over to the practice of dentistry. Annalene, can you pray see for us the most common of these errors so that we know what to look for? 
I can, Simon, because we don't want to go through 300. Um, The researchers went through and distilled these 300 plus errors down into what they refer to as the dirty dozen of risk. And we're going to look at the dirty dozen now. And these definitely resonate as areas which we have identified as requiring risk management in the past. So I'm going to work through each one in turn and in no particular order of importance. But I'm going to start with lack of communication. Now, this can be both between practitioners and patients and practitioners and staff members. And I think lack of communication is probably the one that we are most familiar with. In the purest sense, risk management is essentially three things. It's the saying. So what we say to our patients before treatment and most critical of these conversations, of course, being the conversation of consent. The second part is the doing, the doing of good treatment. And then these are supported with a third of our triad, the documentation. So documenting both what we said and what we did. So if there's one area we can work on improving that will quickly reduce our likelihood of receiving a complaint or making an error, it's communication. The second fact is distraction. And by this, I mean distraction from our core role or duties. The distraction may be related to factors both inside or outside our workplaces or simply just something as pedestrian as being tired. And certainly I can speak from personal experience here as I found myself both tired and distracted on my return to work after maternity leave. Moving on then to lack of resources, this can be particularly error provoking if accompanied by an unanticipated rise in demand. So where we have our resources dwindling or falling away while our demand is rising, sometimes exponentially. And of course, this imbalance can feed into our next point of stress. Stress has many manifestations and it has far reaching effects. Stress and burnout are pervasive and impact on all of our systems, impacting us cognitively, behaviorally, emotionally and physically. The next of our dirty dozen is complacency, whether through overfamiliarity, lack of respect for a process or simple boredom. Halfway through the dirty dozen, we meet number six, lack of teamwork. And this is one we can all relate to. Perhaps this occurs as a direct result of steep practice hierarchies, the disempowerment of certain staff members, clunky processes, or maybe even due to a disruptive member of the team. However it occurs, it's easy to see how it could feed into the occurrence of error. Then we have pressure. Both personal and work-related pressures can influence our risk. The next two are perhaps less commonplace in our clinical practice as dental practitioners. So while lack of awareness of what we're trying to achieve may not feature clinically, lack of awareness of our behavior and how our behavior and actions could be impacting others is something we at Dental Protection see a lot. Lack of knowledge feeds in too. In the airline industry, they say that this is because perhaps we don't know the job well, or we don't have a full and thorough understanding of the regulations and processes that are required to follow through. Now, we can see this in dentistry because so many practitioners tick the box on their ARPA registration without ever actually taking the time to read the guidance they are agreeing to follow. As we move towards the end of our dozen now, we have fatigue. And fatigue impacts on our cognition and behavior and consequently increases our risk. Now, this has been borne out in the road safety research that tells us that being awake for 17 hours has the same effect on our driving ability as having a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05. It's also shown that going without sleep for 24 hours has the same effect as a blood alcohol conversation of 0.01, which is double the legal limit. 
when we consider the research relating fatigue to blood alcohol concentrations, could we accept then that fatigue likely affects our dentistry? Think about your own practice. Would you want an ID block of you if you were tired? Would you want a root canal from tired you, Simon? I personally wouldn't. Lack of assertiveness is a factor too. If we can't speak up for safety, both by setting safe boundaries for our practice and also by raising concerns with a colleague about their intended practice, if we have concerns, then we cannot truly ensure patient safety. And we round off our dirty dozen with what the airline industry call norms. Now, to clarify, this means normalization of subpar performance or behavior. And we often refer to this within dental protection as ethical fade. Well, that's really quite a far-reaching list, Annalene, and, and very impressive. Where do you think practitioners can start then to try to manage or mitigate their risk going forwards? Well, starting from the last one, Simon, I think we first need to understand what ethical fade looks and feels like in practice to be able to address it. So cast your mind back to being a recent graduate or even to a time where you first adopted a new skill in practice. So as you recall, it's also very, very hard and very new at first. And this difficulty is often compounded by the patients not being quite as cooperative as Phantom Head, although Phantom Head didn't always cooperate with me every day. So imagine then you're trying to remove some subgingival calculus from lower anteriors, but it's stuck on tight and the patient's becoming increasingly upset. And notwithstanding the fact that you are now running late and your dental assistant is tutting and rolling their eyes at you. Now, I don't know about you, Simon, but I don't have to cast my mind back very far to accurately recall that sensation and the emotions that that raised in me. So you persevere and you offer the patient local anesthetic, which they refuse, and you try and you try and you try. And in the end, you give up. But you feel really lousy about it. Now, the sensible thing to do then is to talk to a friend or a colleague about this. And this is absolutely what you should do. It's really important to talk when something's troubling you, particularly something in the practice of dentistry. Talk to someone who understands. And this conversation should ease your mind and make you feel a little better, just as you hoped it would. However, some unhelpful things may be said during that conversation. For example, your friend or colleague might say, oh, well, no one ever gets all the scale off and you know, we're only trying to tip the balance back in the patient's favour. It doesn't really matter. Or my personal favourite, well, if the patient wouldn't let you do it, then it's their fault. They didn't get a good job. Now, if you accept this point of view as being correct and reasonable and fair, then you are experiencing what is called ethical numbing. And this is where your sharp ethical compass starts to dull. And if you then follow through and adopt this ethos throughout your practice, you'll quickly move to ethical normalcy, which is the normalization of subpar performance. And finally, the end point of ethical fade when you no longer strive for best practice. Ethical fade is commonplace. And while it may begin as a coping mechanism for stress, it can evolve to become potentially harmful for all involved. Annalena, I think we can all imagine ways to increase our knowledge and awareness and try to develop healthy, functional teams. We can address the resource and demand imbalance. But what about the more personal factors of fatigue and stress then? 
Well, Simon, self-care is something that we as individuals probably don't practice enough. And we are by nature carers, and we've dedicated our entire professional lives to caring for others. Now, I would suggest that we need to start by shifting our focus on what we could do to care for ourselves. Rest and recovery will help with fatigue as well as reflecting on the underpinning factors that could be leading to fatigue. So needless to say, when my children were small, I had sleepless nights because many babies, as you may also recall, Simon, are nocturnal in nature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when I suffer with sleeplessness now, it's often worth me reflecting on whether there may be any niggles or worries that might be underpinning how I feel and impacting on my ability to sleep. Incorporating healthy routines that we can rely on without having to put in too much thought or effort can be a helpful strategy in self-care. It's all too easy to slip into bouncing from one caffeinated sugar fix to the next, and then you round off your day with a couple of shardies just the end of the day to get help you get to sleep. But of course, you're not going to stay asleep, and then you'll wake up tired and reach for your Java jolt and start that cycle all over again. Likewise, working through lunch and not drinking enough water during the day is a shortcut to headachey, poor performance. Now, we're going to talk about this further in our podcast on the third space. But for now, I'll simply say that resting your body when needed, moving your body when not and fueling your body thoughtfully are all helpful ways of managing the human factors that can lead to error. Well, thank you, Annalene, for such an insightful and interesting presentation about human factors in error. We do hope that you found this podcast useful for you and uh, we hope that you'll join us again at one of our other podcasts in the future. Goodbye.